broke my series bugaboo for good and all and opened up the gates for wild cards and a song of ice and fire. As a reader, I had my own favorite series characters. In fantasy, I was drawn to Moorcock's Elric and Howard's Solomon Kane, and I loved Fritz Leiber's dashing rogues, Fofford and a Grey Mouser. In SF, I was fond of Retief, of Dominic Flandry, of Lyja Bailey and R. Daniel Olivaw. But my favorites had to be Jack Vance's galactic effectuator Magnus Ridolf and Paul Anderson's fat, scheming merchant prince of the spaceways, Nicholas Van Rijn. As a writer, I still had dreams of establishing a popular, long-running series of my own, and I had an idea that I was certain would sustain one as well. It was 1975, and ecology was a word on everyone's lips. It seemed to me the series about some sort of biogenetic engineer who moves from world to world solving, or in some cases creating, ecological problems, would offer no end of story possibilities. The subject matter would allow me to explore all sorts of juicy issues, and best of all, no one else had done anything remotely like it, so far as I knew. But who was this fellow? It seemed to me that I had a terrific concept, but to sustain a series I needed a terrific character as well someone the readers would enjoy following story after story. With that in mind, I went back and looked at some of the characters that I had loved as a reader. Nicholas Van Ryn, Conan, Sherlock Holmes, Mowgli, Travis McGee, Horatio Hornblower, Elric of Milnibene, Batman, Northwest Smith, Flashman, Fofford and the Mouser, Retief, Susan Calvin, Magnus Ridolf. A diverse bunch, certainly. I wanted to see if they shared any traits in common. They did. Two things leapt out at me. One, they all had great names, names that fit them perfectly. Memorable names, singular names. You would not like to meet two Horatio Hornblowers. Melnibony's phone book would not list four Elrics. Northwest Smith was not required to use his middle initials to distinguish himself from all the other Northwest Smiths. Secondly, every one of them was larger than life. No average Joes in this bunch. No danger of any of them vanishing into the wallpaper. Many of them are supreme in their own spheres, be that naval warfare, Hornblower, deduction, Holmes, hand-to-hand combat, Conan, or cowardice and lechery, Flashman. Most of them are severely idiosyncratic, to say the least, There's surely a place in fiction for small, commonplace, realistic characters, subtly rendered, but not as the star of an ongoing series. Okay, I thought to myself, I can do that. Thus was born Haviland Tuff, merchant, cat lover, vegetarian, big and bold, drinking mushroom wine and playing God, a fussy man and formal, who has long since veered past idiosyncrasy into out-and-out eccentricity. There's some of Holmes and Ridolf in him, a pinch of Nicholas Van Ryn, a little Hercule Poirot, and a lot of Alfred Hitchcock, but not much of me at all. Of all my protagonists, Tuff is the least like myself, although I did own a cat named Docs, though he was not telepathic. The name... Well, Haviland was a surname I noticed on the wall charts at a chess tournament I was directing. I'm not at all certain where the tough came from. When I put the two of them together, though, that was him, and never a doubt. 
Back in the 70s, I was still trying to place my stories in as wide a variety of markets as possible. I wanted to prove that I could sell to anybody, not just the same few editors. Also, I figured that every time I had a story in a new market, I would reach new readers who might then go on to look for my stuff elsewhere. Working on that theory, I sold the first Haviland Tough story to a British hardcover anthology called Andromeda, edited by Peter Weston. Perhaps A Beast for Norn did indeed win me legions of new British readers, I couldn't say. Unfortunately, very few of my old American readers ever found the story until St. Martin's printed an American edition of Andromeda three years later. By that time, I had already published a second tough story, Call Him Moses. I'd sold that one to Ben Bova. Thereafter, Tuff became a familiar figure in the pages of Analog. Ben and his successor, Stanley Schmidt, got first look at each new Tuff story and bought them all. Not that there were a great many. Tuff was fun.